You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 475 of the Colombia Calling podcast. A quick thank you. To Jorge, who I met in person, long-time listener, first-time meter. Uh, Jorge, we went out for a coffee in Juan Valdez, and he gifted me a T-shirt which says Bogota, 2,640 meters closer to heaven. So very much similar or the same real thing that I say here in the intro. So very kind of you, Jorge, for that, and very kind of you to share your story uh, with me. We're going to, obviously, we will continue in contact and hopefully collaborate on things in the future also thank you to dan for his email suggesting that i should talk again to some people involved in the demining humanitarian demining of colombia i did of course in episode 271 uh, discuss this with the halo foundation but that was you know, all of four years ago. So maybe it's time to revisit that uh, that subject. And uh, and also, thank you for your kind words, Dan, because you referred to, uh, well, my co-host Emily as, and I'm just going to pick it up here, the... Keep up the great words you said, and wow, thank the stars for the ineffable Emily Hart. So I sent that to her, and she was very pleased indeed and very touched by that uh, compliment. And yes, she is our very own ineffable Emily Hart. This episode, 475, we're talking to Angela Lederach. She's in Colorado at the time of our recording, but she's en route. Well, she'd left Nebraska, and she's en route to California, where she is now the Assistant Professor of Peace Studies at Chapman University. For those of you who don't know, Chapman is in Orange County, so there in California. I think she's made the right decision, Nebraska to California, but there, you know, who knows. Uh, she'll be talking about her new book and her experiences over the course of a decade Her uh, in the Montes de Maria uh, section of Colombia. Now, Montes de Maria is a sort of hilly section between Cartagena and Mompos. So go south from Cartagena to Mompos and you're going to pass through some hills. And it's been an area that's been strafed by violence by all sides for as long as one could possibly remember. She has a book out called Feel the Grass Grow, Ecologies of Slow Peace in Colombia. So a fascinating conversation with a true expert in the field. I really, really recommend you listen to this one from beginning to end to understand a little bit more about the dynamics of the varied forms of violence that have affected that area for so long. So it's a great honor to have someone of such, you know, such expertise in this academia uh, on the podcast once again. Next week, we'll have Paula Forrero, who was on the show many years ago as well when she was working for Semana magazine but she's now no longer working there uh, she has her own startup in the colombian chocolate world so we'll be changing tack a little bit to discuss startups what generation x is doing today quitting well always what generation x has always done quitting full-time jobs or mac jobs as uh, douglas copeland would call them uh, and then uh, doing their own thing so we're talking to her next week about that but thank you so much to everyone thank you especially to jorge and to dan for their messages and of course the t-shirt and uh, yes keep on listening for the news from emily hart and then we'll be back with angela lederach of course you can support us on patreon that's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia calling. All right, don't go away. 
The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own just complete the form on the columbia calling website that's www.columbiacalling.co or the bnb columbia tours website that's www.bnbcolumbia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive columbian adventure so that's bnbcolumbia.com and latin news Dot com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of Monday, June 26th, 2023. In cities across Colombia this week, anti-government demonstrators took to the streets to oppose government reforms as part of a response by the political opposition to marches President Gustavo Petro himself called earlier this month in attempts to bolster his reform agenda. While many of these reforms have stumbled in Congress, the finance minister said this week that the government is willing to make compromises in order to pass its ambitious raft of legal projects. The controversial health reform continues through Congress and will now be carried over to the new legislative session in July. The labour reform, however, will need to be proposed from scratch after its first debate in the lower house did not reach quorum declared a serious setback by Petro. While the government said that the bill would be key in the fight against poverty, critics said it would harm job creation. And the constitutional reform, which would have legalised the recreational market for adult use of cannabis, collapsed last week in the Senate, with 47 votes for and 43 against. The bill needed only 54 votes to pass. While some cannabis-derived products are legal, sale of the drug for recreation is illegal in Colombia, though Petro has said the government will continue to pursue legalisation. Meanwhile, Congress has approved raising the budget by 16.9 trillion pesos, around 4 billion US dollars, including big boosts to education and health. The additional funds are reportedly earnings from the tax reform, which raised duties on oil and coal. The Colombian government is set to declare an economic and social emergency in the department of La Guajira. This declaration would enable the president to rule by decree in the area for 90 days without the authorization of Congress. La Guajira suffers from chronic lack of drinking water and child malnutrition, which are both set to worsen due to the effects of the El Niño weather phenomenon this year. The entire cabinet will be in La Guajira for this whole week. 30 soldiers were held hostage during attempted operations against illegal mining in the Valle de Cauca this week. Soldiers have claimed that they were fired upon, which is why they fired their weapons, killing a man and wounding four more. Local government has said that operations against illegal mining will continue in the area, which is a nature reserve near Cali. This is just the latest in a series of violent events this year which relate to mining and extraction, both legal and illegal. Events have included explosives attacks and numerous kidnappings. Meanwhile, communities regularly complain that hydrocarbons exploration and exploitation come with environmental damage and few improvements to local life or infrastructure. Meanwhile, the Colombian government are preparing to help energy companies revive at least 21 suspended oil and gas contracts, part of an initiative aimed at solving issues of security and community relations. This despite the government's stated intent to wean Colombia off hydrocarbons, on which the economy remains reliant. 
Some of the contracts have been suspended for a decade or more. Others will not be included in the scheme due to the nature of their exploitation, for example, fracking. The finance minister said this week that Colombia will continue to extract fossil fuels for some time until it has other exports to replace that revenue. He did, however, say that they would be issuing carbon credits focused on deforestation, green bonds to finance restoration and water sources, and social bonds to reduce inequality. The Galinsky family, the banking and business dynasty which was subject of our Tinto Talks pilot earlier this month, has purchased El Heraldo, the most influential newspaper on the Caribbean coast of Colombia. Ownership of this outlet is an addition to El País, a Cali newspaper they bought a few months ago, and to national magazine Semana, which the family acquired in 2019. They have also tried to buy El Colombiano, the most influential newspaper in Medellin, but with no success. Company sources told press that the family aims to control more than 50% of the country's news traffic within the next year. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is the Columbia Calling podcast, episode 475. My very special guest is Angela Lederach. Uh, she is the assistant professor of peace studies at Chapman University. For those of you who don't know Chapman, it's in Orange County, California. And we're going to discuss her new book brought out by Stanford University Press. It's called Feel the Grass Grow, Ecologies of Slow Peace in Columbia. So welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. I'm glad to have a chance to be uh, talking with you. Well, you'll make me blush. You'll make me blush. Thank <laughs> you so much. No, you. I mean, I really enjoy, obviously, the, the more politically oriented podcast. And I know that my listeners know that. But we do have to mix it up. Otherwise, I would just go from academic to academic you know, talking about it. But so so that's why I have to be measured. And now you've got a book out and I was I was alerted to it by, you know, Stanford University Press. I guess they mm -hmm. they do a Google, you know, press in English about <laughs> Colombia and, and I pop up. Um, but so it's always flattering to be contacted. And I've, I've plowed my way through the book and it's really a long study and a very deep uh, deep look at uh, the Montes de Maria. Yeah. Let's let's go into that straight away for my listeners. Let's start from the very beginning. Tell us where the Montes de Maria is located. Yeah, so Montes de Maria is located on the northern Caribbean coast of Colombia. It's between Cartagena and Sincelejo, and so it has um, kind of 15 different municipalities. Um, both Bolivar and Sucre are part of the territory, but for those who live in Montes de Maria, it's kind of under, there's a very strong territorial identity, a very strong uh, history, one that's really rooted in forms of collective resistance that date back to uh, escape and freedom from um, colonization and from enslavement. And so it was a refuge in many ways for an intercultural group of Afro-Colombians, uh, of campesinos and of indigenous um, communities who found refuge in this sort of mountainous, uh, very rural uh, area, kind of between these two major cities, Sincelejo and Cartagena. And it's gorgeous. So if anyone can can visit, uh, I highly recommend uh, that, that opportunity to be there. Really rich uh, cultural practices, music traditions, singing, poetry. Um, so it's, it's a beautiful place, beautiful history. It really does. I mean, it's brimming with culture, especially when you talk about the the music. And I know of people going up there to do bird watching as well. But let's let's get this out there quickly. I mean, I live in the Andes. I'm from England. We don't really have mountains, but I live in the Andes here in Bogota. The Montes de Maria are not mountains. It's just kind of hills. <laughs> As I know, the Spanish didn't really want, they wanted plains, didn't they? They wanted flat to cultivate yeah. and to exploit. And so the hills were kind of off limits and it became, I would suppose, you know, like a, a big geographical palenque sort of stronghold for indigenous and 
maybe escaped slaves and so on. And that's what you see in the in the sort of uh, I would say the breakdown of the population these days. It's it's campesinos, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely right. And it is um I I grew up kind of partly in Virginia for those who are kind of familiar with the region and then um call home Colorado is where I call home and so it's sort of the difference between the Shenandoah kind of area of Blue Ridge Mountains and uh and the Rocky Mountains, very different. But but still a, a kind of difficult terrain. It was deeply kind of forested terrain. It was hard to reach, not easy to cultivate. Um, and so it did. It served as as a sort of um, refuge for for a lot of uh, a lot of people, um, and really became one of the strongholds for self liberation movements for maroon movements um, of of people who had been enslaved mm-hmm. and who are escaping that. And so that sort of intercultural identity is very strong, and it's strongly really re- related to people's relationship with the land. Um, so something that's really important when we talk about campesinos or small farmers, oftentimes that term is used in a way that is distinct from Afro-descendant uh, or indigenous individuals. But in Montes de Maria, that term is a, is a kind of social political term that has deep relationship to the land. And so people simultaneously identify as, as more than one thing. You can be black and campesino, indigenous and campesino. And so that category has always been a plural category in this particular region, um, which I think is important to note when we're looking at regional differences across Colombia and the ways that uh, people's identities are deeply rooted to specific histories and geographies, but also their relationships to land and their material practices with, with the land. I think there's there's so much in this book feel the grass grow that I want to talk about. But when you mention land, it brings me to what's going on right now. I mean, obviously right now, and obviously last week's episode. And I had a my friend Irvin Liz, who is of the NASA community, and we were talking about his perspective on the rescue of the children in Caqueta, Guaviare, the Mukutui children, and his perspective you know, an indigenous perspective of the relationship to the jungle and to the land. And, you know, we we, we consider this, but, you know, you consider it also in the Montes de Maria. You have to. And, well, obviously, there's the underlying issue of land ownership and land reform. You know, Colombia's well, number one on the peace accords with with the, mm-hmm. with, the, with the FARC signed in 2016, President Santos and so on, and perhaps the underlying issue, uh, many other issues that are creating the conflict and the extension of the conflict, obviously, are, are woven in, but land remains. And when you talk about land, you have a section in the book when you when you sort of there's a chapter on sort of i think it's the 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 witnessing the avocados die and that was in 1995 it was a soil fungus it was the death of the avocado tree uh in the narrative of the armed conflict and you know i guess you and i from let's say a, a north american northern european perspective look at it as you know it was a fungus it was a blight but the people there see it as you know, it's it's a whole, isn't it? It's the whole. It's not. It, the conflict is also affecting the environment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. One of the things that really emerged in the work that I did, and this kind of took place over the course of close to ten years, working collaboratively collaboratively with campesino movements in Montes de Maria um, to do this research was the central role of environment and how people understood and narrated both their experience of the violence, so the ways that the violence affected their wider environmental relationships, their relationships with the land. And so not just in terms of legal terms or in terms of property, but in terms of living and vibrant uh, relationship and connection to the land, but also then necessarily informs centrally how they understand peace. Um, you know, people often would say we also have to reconcile with the earth. You know, the the war has been violent with the earth, and we must reconcile with her. Um, and this became 
particularly poignant in the Alta Montaña, which is the high mountain area of Montes de Merida. Um, it's part of El Carmen de Bolivar, so right in the heart of the territory, um, where a fungus, the Phytophthora cinnamomi, was, was introduced kind of at the height of forced displacements um, in the area or at the beginning of a lot of the massacres that took place and, and a lot of the forced displacements of entire communities. And part of what, you know, there are varied kind of hypotheses about how that fungus was introduced. Some people, you know, are, are fairly adamant that there was a uh, real intent around that introduction, whereas other people, um, you know, have said maybe it came through because of the tracking of armed, you know, armed groups. So, Campesinos are very careful about what boots they wear uh, into, you know, to to uh, tend the land just so that they don't introduce new diseases or fungus. And all of a sudden you had all of this armed activity mobilizing in the region, which had the possibility of introducing new fungi. But there isn't necessarily intent there. But what everybody really agrees uh, upon in terms of the fungus is that because of the forced displacements, the removal of people from their land, there were not people there to actually attend to the fungus, to attend to the avocado trees, to address the spread of that fungus, to stop it in its tracks. And there was a total lack of any kind of institutional response. And so you had urgent letters over the course of a decade, right? So there's a real paradox and like urgency over 10 years. Um, to state institutions that had collapsed in that region, who are no longer visiting that region, who are no longer willing to travel to that area because of the armed conflict. And that led to the 90% uh, of the avocado trees eventually dying, um, which was really a whole forest ecology. Um, so these are not Haas avocados. This wasn't a kind of monoculture avocado forest. This is a kind of varied mixture of old growth avocado criollo or kind of, you know, um, traditional avocado trees that uh, had a dramatic effect on, on the ecology. Um, and so a group of campesinos actually mobilized in 2010 um, and 1,600 of them marched from kind of the highest peak of the Alta Montaña, and they're marching towards Cartagena, which is quite a distance by foot. Um, and they signed, uh, they met in San Jacinto, which is kind of in the middle, and signed 91 Accords with, with the state. And one of their primary um, demands was recognition of the avocado as a victim of the war. Huh. Um, that this is, you know, a direct result of the armed conflict, but also that the avocado, you know, wasn't just um, a crop. It was a living being, an entity, uh, a, a central figure uh that was part of a wider ecology. Um, and it was really that mobilization that gave rise to the movement in the area that is known as the peaceful process of reconciliation and integration of the Alta Montaña. It's a very long, very long name, powerful it's, it's, name. <laughs> always the way here, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am, um, I, that, the, you know the the recognition of the avocado as a victim and, and a living being an entity it's, it's a very similar to the work that's been done again to recognize the atrato river you know these are things that have suffered and yes i've had the people from uh the name escapes me but they do the forensic investigations okay. and it's fascinating that they can see through the conflict how the forest dies back over decades and things yeah. like that. And it's really, it's amazing when you look at it and the mangroves and how these things suffer. But I wanted to touch, I think it's very interesting on this fungus. And well, right now, and, and I hadn't thought about the boots coming through, obviously. Mm -hmm. I would like to imagine that it wasn't deliberate, you know, like a it, uh, environmental warfare. I would like to imagine it was just on the boots. Uh, but it makes me think, and you did quote someone I've had on the show before as well, Lina Pinto, mm -hmm. and, and Lina being an expert in leishmaniasis and tropical diseases, right. we came to a conclusion when we were discussing it, it's like the expansion of the armed conflict in Colombia is 
is responsible for the vast expansion of leishmaniasis through these parts of the jungle. And so I mean, there's a very similar look when you look at the boots traipsing through. And I, I think I mean, we should give our, our listeners a bit of background. We've got the campesinos, we've got the different communities living there. First, it was the FARC that came through, I want to say, and then... The, when were the ELN and then the paramilitaries, or did I get, or is it a mix between the last two? It, it's a mix. So, the, especially the Alta Montaña has a very complex history, and it's often hard to have that history dated by people. So, there's you know some differences in in when people put dates, and and I don't want to. It sometimes that is um, people will see that as. A, a sort of inaccuracy. I actually think that that reflects the accuracy of the experience of living through a war, um, where armed groups and their relationships with communities who are living in areas that were under territorial dispute, violent dispute, um, you know, really produced over the years uh, uh, an experience of chaos. Um, and so you had you had kind of in, in early phases the PRT um, as well as uh, the ELN and the FARC. Um, but the FARC really kind of settled there. And one of their fronts was located in the Alta Montaña. Mm. You also have a military base that has a, a it continues to operate at the kind of um, one of the highest peaks in the Alta Montaña that has a helicopter landing pad. So you had the military also based in the Alta Montaña and you had the paramilitaries not necessarily based, but constantly moving through. Um, and so it was one of the key corridors. It connected the lower region of Montes de Maria and the Caribbean Sea to some of the major highways um, and, to the, and to the sort of forested areas where where the FARC had um, kind of created a base. Um, and, and it's really important, I think, to understand the ways that civilian populations, campesino communities who did not to, you know, who did not displace, who chose to remain resistant in the face of extreme forms of violence, really found themselves caught in between multiple and competing armed groups. And they were also often stigmatized by all of them. <laughs> so if you were located near the FARC, you were stigmatized as a member of the FARC. If you were located near the paramilitaries on the side where the paramilitaries operated, you were stigmatized as paramilitaries. If you were located near the military, you're stigmatized as military. Um, and so a number of the individuals I you know work work with you know, were often on hit lists of all of these groups. Um, and so their names rotated across them, right? So it wasn't as if, which I think speaks to that experience of, of chaos, of being caught in between, of widespread fear and repression that people lived under for over a decade. Um, you know, so a really complex history, many, many armed groups in and out of this region. Um, I think the, the kind of three that had the most impact who kind of created bases in this area were the military, so the state, uh, the paramilitaries that worked in very close collaboration with the state, um, and and the FARC, the 35th front of the FARC. And of course, you know, you're, you were doing research between for, you know, a long time between 2014 and 2021. So mm -hmm. this period of time, you saw a lot. And I'm sure you had, you have a lot of uh, not so pleasant anecdotes to share. Let's not go into those. One of the anecdotes over in the book, though, is is Salvador, who's uh, who who just out of nowhere kind of mm -hmm. says why his name Salvador. Perhaps you'd share that with us. Yeah, this is a really close collaborator and dear friend of mine, known Alberto's Gonzalez is his uh, birth name, <laughs> mm. um, and he is he was one of the coordinators um, who really helped to start the youth wing of the Campesino movement. They call themselves the Youth Peace Provokers, Jóvenes Provocadores de Paz. Um, so this is an intergenerational movement, which I think is really important to think about, um, to find hope within. Um, and now, yeah, um, we were we were in his. I was visiting his 
his community. Uh, it's right near a reservoir. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, a really long history of resistance in that community. And we were just enjoying a relaxing afternoon in the hammocks. And all of a sudden, um, he told me that his nickname was Salvador, which I kind of heard, um, but I, you know, hadn't thought very much of it. People have different kinds of nicknames for different reasons. Salvador, of course, means uh, savior or, you know, one who saves. Um, and he went on to explain that he was given that name um, because uh, a guerrilla group who he was not, he's not actually able to identify which guerrilla group this was at the time, because so many moved in and out of, of his community. So especially the ELN and both ELN and the FARC um, had taken his mother and his aunt at gunpoint. His mother was very far along in her pregnancy and under duress, she went into labor. Um, and as she was going into labor, uh, a torrential downpour hit. And if you've ever been in rural, you know, rural communities in Colombia, when these torrential downpours hit, it is very intense. And the wind, um, and the wind was just whipping. <laughs> and it actually started to damage the roof. And so you had a laboring woman under a thatched roof where water was starting to come in, where the wind was blowing. And actually members of this guerrilla group put down their arms patched the roof until she gave birth and left. Um, and, and that's Noam's birth story. Um, and, and so, you know, he tells the story with this smile on his face from ear to ear. Uh, it's clearly shaped his biography, his sense of self, both in terms of what it means to resist that kind of violence, what it means to be born under duress, but also the sort of strength and courage of his mother, of his aunt. Um, and for him, really what it means to be a peace builder, which is something that he you know, deeply uh, identifies as a constructor de paz, as a peace builder in his community. Um, and you know, later on, he, his family is uh, stigmatized and targeted by the paramilitaries um, because the gorilla had come and left and nobody died. And so they were seen as, oh, it must, they're, you know, all of a sudden they're sort of stigmatized as collaborating with the gorilla. And that's often how that operated. Although I would say, I think there were other underlying mm -hmm. um, motivations, particularly his, his father owned a lot of the boats that would transport people across the reservoir, um, that connects the lower end of, of Montes de Maria, Maria La Baja, to the high mountain region. And so it was a sort of critical transportation infrastructure. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the youth that I worked with were born into the war uh, and have chosen also to dedicate their lives now to rebuilding their communities. And in many ways, not often knowing what it even meant to rebuild, right? Not having a memory of a of a before, um, and so the intergenerational solidarity, the intergenerational practices of kind of memory of telling these sorts of stories, you know, not just of the violence, but of of the kinds of solidarity economies, of the kinds of ecologies, of the relationships that one had with the wider uh, environment in that area you know, those stories become really central to how youth imagine futures of dignified life for themselves, imagine something beyond war. And I think it is in that imagining that a kind of projection um, sustains the work that they're doing in a context where there is still severe inequality, severe poverty, ongoing violence, uh, especially in the last couple of years, really high levels of recruitment of youth by the Clan de Golfo that has really moved into this region. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that piece of campesino storytelling, of oral history, of the sharing of stories like, like Nowen's birth story become really central to how people sustain and continue to, to work towards a different kind of world for themselves. I, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, it, it's kind of staggering because, you know, I, I, I think I was, I wanted to jump in earlier that, that large march of people that got to San Jacinto, I think I was stuck behind it in a traffic jam in 2010, because okay. I think I remember it. But uh, yeah. uh, that said, that's a digression here. I, um, 
you, I, I, I wonder why. You know, I wonder. You know, these these ideas bounce around in my head, and the confusion as to why this area. Perhaps we could just take a very superficial look and say, but why, why here? Why in the Montezuma Maria? It's only a couple hours from Cartagena. It's only a couple hours like down to Montbos, tourist destinations, but right here. And so when I talk to Colombians who want to come down, they always ask, and I'm like, well, no, you stick to the road, uh, you stick to the road through Carmen de Bolivar, San Jacinto, and, and you're fine. Uh, or if they're coming across the country, because it does connect east and west quite a lot with that road between uh, Carmen and Bosconia, uh, mm-hmm. and in and, and there, but. Why is this area so so disputed all the time? I think, I mean, I think there are a number of reasons, right? You have access to the Caribbean Sea, especially on, you know, what would be considered Maria La Baja or the lower region of Montes de Maria. And then you have direct access to what, you know, is a more forested region, is really rich fertile land. Um, and a, a sort of highway system that allows for a kind of uh, transportation and, and connection between major cities and between major ports. Um, so you have agricultural opportunity, you know, you have an increasingly um, extensive palm oil industry that has moved in, which has really direct ties, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you can map on the expansion of the palm oil industry to paramilitary massacres and forced displacements that took place, um, especially under the Uribe administration. Uh, so you have this sort of rich, fertile land, rich, fertile waterways. It is in part what created a space of refuge for people, a kind of food sovereignty for people historically who lived there. And then you also have these really key kind of access points. Um, and on top of that, when you're thinking about kind of where the FARC created bases, um, some of the, the ways they were able to remain in sort of forested, a little bit more remote areas, um, also, historically, when they initially arrived, you know, arriving with a kind of political conscientization, uh, with a, a kind of ideology that political ideology that was really rooted in uh, advocating for different kinds of land reforms. And I think that got distorted over the years, but let's not forget where some of that history began and why the FARC might have, you know, arrived to this region. Montes de Maria is also the birthplace of one of the largest campesino movements in Colombia, the ANUC, um, in the 1970s. And so this area um, has this really rich history of collective organizing, of organizing from the grassroots up, of moments of enormous hope in terms of shifting kinds of power relationships uh, within an elite political culture um, through through that sort of intercultural uh, coalition building that movements like the Anouk really represented. Um, So you have backlash against the Anouk as they were gaining power from kind of elite landowners in in the area as well. And I think both uh, guerrilla groups interested in joining or finding support from campesino organizations, campesino movements, as well as uh, kind of paramilitaries that emerge really as self-defense forces for landowning elites. You know, this is it, it, it's really a space where a lot of those things converged, even though it's not it's not a coca growing region. Right. This is different than some of the, the regions that have been heavily hit by the armed conflict, but it has key transportation areas, a really interesting history, especially as that relates to land reform, relates to what it means to build power from the grassroots, Um, you know, really challenging and, and, um, you know, moments where there is real sense of change in terms of the challenge that the the campesino movement posed to an elite political class um, and fertile land. So a kind of agricultural history, whether that's tobacco, um, you know, that that kind of started to come into Montes de Maria and then later led to leagues of campesino organizers in the 20s, um, or whether that's more recently with the emergence of of palm oil and the palm oil industry. 
I think those are dynamics that have have really shaped the area. Definitely. So now there's a word that popped up a lot in that last intervention, and it's the word the the elites. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I don't think we could do a discussion about your book and about all of this without mentioning them. Uh, hopefully, I'm sure you've read Jenny Pierce's uh, with Juan Velasco, David Velasco, Juan Velasco, I can't remember, but yeah. it's it's phenomenal though. And one of the elite families, one of the heads of the elite families is a guest often in my hotel. When he wants to pay, he doesn't like paying. Um <laughs> He saw my library and a large selection of books about the Colombian conflict and gave me a lecture on the benefits of paramilitarism in the region. Mm. So leading on from that anecdote, (laughs) and I'm not mentioning names, uh, because I still feel like I'm a bit like Robin Hood. If he stays, the money goes from him. Because <laughs> basically everything that enters goes to pay my staff. So, <laughs> so I feel like Robin Hood in that respect. But um, with that in mind, I mean, you obviously are not from there when you spend all this time there. You didn't get yourself into any trouble. No, I, you know, I think... In a lot of ways, so I, I first started going to Monte de Maria in 2010, um, and those were shorter trips. Um, and certainly, you know, in 2010, there was still quite a lot of uh, tension, a lot of territorial dispute. But a lot of the time that I spent in Monte de Maria would have been labeled, um, you know, and I'm critical of this term post-conflicto, post-conflict, which is you know, a real misnomer when you think about the ongoing forms of violent conflict that exist, the ongoing forms of dispute that exist, but also conflict is a part of life. And so what is post-conflict, I'm, I'm not sure is, is a helpful term for us to use, but um, but it but it was in a period that you know had much less kind of armed activity. And so I would go through military checkpoints, uh, often had to meet with generals to introduce myself, especially to pass through um, where the military base was to get to different communities. Um, Certainly know a number of people who have uh, demobilized from various armed groups, including the paramilitaries who live in um, in the region and in those communities um, who have been reintegrated through informal processes. Um, but, But I you know, I've, I'm grateful that I have not necessarily had um, direct experiences, um, even though very aware of the sort of security challenges. I would say that this isn't without great intention and deliberation. Um, and so people that I work with have done a lot of this research was collaborative. We kind of I worked with uh, the coordinating committee of the movement. I worked with a local peacebuilding organization named Sembrando Paz, which means sowing seeds of peace, um, that has longstanding relationships in in the region, um, has been based there for a long time. And every, you know, every week is a sort of security assessment. What's going on? Where? Who's moving? through where, what kinds of uh, interactions are happening. So there were certainly different um, assassinations that happened while I was there. There were certainly death threats that occurred. Um, One of the main leaders of of the Campesino movement, the peaceful process, Jorge Luis Montes, uh, six months following that nonviolent march, he was arrested and detained and imprisoned for four years. Um, and then released through the transitional justice mechanism of HEP. Um, And he was sentenced to 40 years in prison and accused of the highest crimes that you can imagine as a member of the FARC, which he's never been part of. Um, And so he has kind of refused to uh, put himself on the list of the FARC. The FARC actually had a public statement um, saying that Jorge has never been part of their organization um, as you know, as part of his case went forward, but he's really in legal limbo because by not putting himself on the list of the FARC, he excludes himself from the transitional justice mechanisms of the HEP, of the Special Jurisdiction for Peace. And yet he's been accused of, you know, his crimes are under the rubric of the FARC. So it's a really complicated 
um, an unjust case. Uh, the former late High Commissioner of uh, Human Rights in Colombia, Todd Howland, you know, called this an emblematic case of you know, this is the kinds of um, more difficult and complex forms of violence that emerged from the massive arbitrary detentions, the incarceration of campesinos who were stigmatized by the state as being part of the guerrilla. Um, and so you had, you know, throughout the time that I've lived there, you know, these sorts of death threats, these sorts of direct forms of incarceration. But I think especially as somebody who uh, is kind of a white U.S. citizen, I have not experienced the kind of stigmatization that the people that I work with do on a regular basis. No, and, and you know, we have to support and, and celebrate the work they do in the face of such risks that continue today. I mean, that's the truth of it. Uh, it's, a, as you said, varied forms of violence. And you were mentioning the sort of misnomer of post-conflict. And I, I, I usually say post-accord mm -hmm. for most things. And then you've got a, another a quote in your book was uh, the tension between peace signing and peace building, which of course mm -hmm. I think plays off very well. But I... I, we don't have that much more time, but I can tell that you can talk for, for as long as needed. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to, you know, I, when you talk about these death threats and so on, is the quote from, uh, you know, a very, a, a very well known, uh, I would say, they'd probably call a, a community leader, a peace uh, builder, Amilcar Rocha Gonzalez, and it's in your book, and it says, Every time we try to claim our most basic rights, we just receive death threats. And that's that's just the day-to-day -day reality. But before we we sort of start winding this down, I also want to, you know, it's a, just a different, it's a different world, uh, the Montes de Maria, even to Cartagena, even, well, obviously to Bogota, Medellin, and other cities. And I, I thought we should sort of celebrate a little bit as well of the Costeño culture that you get in there. Because we talk about the, we've talked about the music and we've talked about, uh, you know, the culture, the vibrancy, but it's, it's Hoka Beth's quote. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know, uh, walking slowly in her account, Hoka Beth is not a form of lethargy limited to notions of speed, but rather a way of inhabiting the world. And I think this encompasses so much of what you're saying about being in the place at the time and how you interact with your environment. You know, here in the city, we're getting somewhere, but there it's it's about engaging. And and I think that comes into the, you know, the the how you configure peace building and community and so on. And that's what I'm taking from your book uh totally. I also want to say one more thing, and then I will shut up and you can talk. But um, there's each time that there's sort of like a new wave of efforts, a new wave of, of government agencies or international NGOs or what have you coming in, because the Montes de Maria has been, you know, a test case for so many different uh, efforts, and the disconnect between government or international aid and assistance and the needs on the ground seems so so tangible in your book by the you know the experiences of the people you can see that you know nothing's a surprise sure they're coming back nothing nothing things change but they change in a different way and then obviously one group leaves aid group and another you know another arrives and there's this perpetual cycle I I feel or I felt when I was reading it a certain degree of wariness. You know, it's like we, I don't know how do you how do you react to this? Yeah, it is exhausting. I mean, it, you know, and for me, I'm not even directly a recipient, right? I'm an I'm an observer. I'm a participant observer. Um, but to be in in literally the same kind of meeting over the course of 10 years with the victims unit, where every meeting was a new person coming in to do a diagnostic of the violence. And the first time I experienced it, you know, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And, and Naun was next to me and he was like, I can't believe we're doing this again. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what he means by that. And 10 years later, they're doing the same thing. 
Um, and so you have this, you have a changeover in leadership, you have a shift from, you know, doing something under the victim's law to doing it now under the peace accords. And all of that is a way of sort of, um, I think, pretending or performing a kind of fulfillment without actually fulfilling um, materially the what is, you know, what is constitutional rights for people, the right to health care, the right to education, which is what they're putting in, in these accords. Um, and so I, you know, one of the things that I found really helpful it, that I started to hear over and over again is that people started, you know, campesino organizers, I heard this throughout Montes de Maria, would talk about this in terms of fotos y firmas, participation limited to just fotos y firmas, photos and signatures. And if you've ever been to any of these meetings, the first thing that get, that is passed around is an attendance sheet. Um, and Roxani Cristalli has done f- fabulous work, you know, actually looking at the ways that state bureaucrats in the victims unit themselves see the attendance sheet mm-hmm. as one of the primary forms of action. That is how they measure their impact. That is how they measure the work being done. Right? But an attendance sheet isn't a material uh, response or fulfillment of what has been agreed upon and what has been guaranteed in in law. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so to experience that over and over, this kind of performance of a shallow form of action where it's taking a photo, you know, sending it across the Twitter waves um, and then having people sign these attendance sheets um, over, you know, to do that repeated, it gives a sense of a kind of fast paced experience uh, that is perpetually delayed, right? So there is this paradox and I translate um, this term that came up, you know, we need to build paz sin prisa, peace without hurry. I translate quite liberally <laughs> into slow peace um, because I think it actually gets at the different aspects of what campesino organizers, campesino peace builders are calling for in terms of a shift from photos y firmas, from photos and signatures, is kind of project-based repetition of meetings uh, that kind of masquerade as a form of action without any kind of material um, implementation uh, to a shift to to a much more relationally grounded, um, historically attuned uh, process that actually leads to deep structural transformations. And so that kind of call to build prisa, peace without hurry or slow peace is not about, uh, you know, making an already sluggish bureaucracy more sluggish. <laughs> and it's not necessarily suggesting the state is fulfilling uh, what it's agreed upon. It's actually a call to shift the way that these short-term interventions that then cycle into, you know, this kind of perpetually delayed process for people. Mm. How do you actually shift that dynamic? And I think that quote from Hokabet really speaks to this idea of slowness, where you know, people in the city would remark about it would remark on how campesinos you know, arrived late or the meetings went so long, or you know, we didn't you know, they didn't get down to like the meeting points or the agenda until like noon. But here you are in a community where people have understood and seen themselves as enemies mm-hmm. as deep you know deep seated enemies for a decade shaking hands they've walked 5 hours they woke up at 4 in the morning to arrive to this meeting they're advocating for reparations <laughs> for a repair of their social and economic fabric um and they're doing that together and they're creating a space for that together. That's not empty, right? That's not a kind of lethargy. That is a way of inhabiting the world and approaching peace um, that is fundamentally different than you know, driving in an SUV, passing around an attendance sheet, and driving back to the capital city the same day. Um, and that gap is very real, uh, and it has real political and social consequences um, and, and it, you know, in this book, and I, I think part of that exhaustion that maybe you felt is the way that it violates people's dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a disrespect in the way that those meetings are carried out in the ways that Campesino knowledge, 
uh, of their own communities, of the work that they're doing in their communities, of their understanding of the work of peace building, of their commitment to it, you know, the way that that's elided or erased and how these interventions on these kind of short-term project bases with experts flying in and out of the territory are carrying them out. Um, and so I hope, you know, on the one hand, it's a critique, but I also hope there's a sort of generosity in that critique, a possibility of kind of lifting out what compass, you know, peace building actually looks like, what it feels like, what it offers for us for thinking about peace differently. Um, and and kind of adds to a really rich body of literature in in the Colombian context on on the work of peace building. Uh, I think Colombia is known often for the violence, but wow, when you think about creative forms of peace building, the research that has emerged on you know tremendous forms of conflict transformation and peace work, Colombia to me is where we ought to be looking for for those creative solutions. Um, and so I hope the book kind of walks that balance that you feel the exhaustion because I want people to understand what it's like to be in those meetings over 10 years, but to not just stay there. You know, what are, what are the alternatives that something like slow peace, like a passing brisa might offer us. But I think that, you know, I think that at the end, you finishing on that is a positive, is a positive because, you know, you take these, these victories, like the, the person who's, you know, shaking hands with a former, uh, you know, enemy or you know um this is huge this is a huge deal you cannot uh minimize the importance of that that that, that. but then that's what i say to the detractors of of the processes and all of these things that it's not working da, da, da. this thing doesn't happen from night to day it's a this is generational and you you know there has to be a whole construction process around it but I thought then I will I will end on something I pulled from your book in the conclusion, and it's your quote. I advocate for a critical anthropology of peace building that understands peace as a historical, socio-ecological, and political process. And I think that's what you were saying right there at the end. And I think it's it's a hundred percent on point. And uh well, for those of you who are academics or not an academic, but far more interested in peace building and the experience in Colombia, especially in a region such as the Montes de Maria, or just taking the experience from the Montes de Maria to try and maybe transpose it elsewhere in the world, plenty of conflict everywhere. Um, you know, it, this is a this is an excellent book on that front. So please check it out. Feel the Grass Grow, Ecologies of Slow Peace in Colombia by Angela Lederach and it was released, uh, I guess, last month by the Stanford University University Press. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Richard. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate being, you know, have the opportunity to be part of this podcast. I've been listening to for a long time. Congrats to you on ten years too. Oh, so yeah, it's had. You. I'm very happy to, uh, yeah, join. Uh, join this conversation. And for anyone interested in not just passing through Montes de Maria, Sembrando Fas has a beautiful farm they're reforesting. Um, you know, you can look them up on on Facebook and and stay at their beautiful cabin. Oh, wow. uh, so I encourage you not to just pass through or to be too concerned about it. There are ways to enjoy this incredible region of the world, incredible region of Colombia. And thanks to you, Richard, for this space, no, no, for your it, good questions. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I and, and I know you're moving across country, yeah. <laughs> Nebraska, Colorado to California. I think That's you've right. made the right decision. Good <laughs> luck on the move and congratulations yeah. on the book. And thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Columbia po Calling podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure is mine. Bye-bye. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... 
BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolumbia.com and Latin News. Com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors.